is a senior creative with 18 years of experience who specializes in leading the design process for startups who care about having unified brand experiences between their marketing communication and the products they offer he is an expert in strategizing with ceos and it leading the design process for customer centric brands that want to visually communicate their value and convert strangers into customers by creating amazing logos evergreen websites captivating marketing funnels printed and online collaterals and so much more when it comes to product development he is highly experienced working with ctos and product leaders to produce intuitive user experience based wireframes and clean ui designs for development teams to produce stellar products by providing detailed instructions and clear creative direction for developers to follow and execute sounds interesting isn't it let's chat with taso nikitakis in today's episode and understand about his creative journey and his entrepreneurial journey so far how he has been helping brands scale up not only scale up but also acquire some good funding and not only acquire good funding but also get acquired by some uh, big brands this is the guiding voice podcast series the guiding voice for a better future friends i am your host navin samala just a fellow professional on a mission to make the world a better place to live through the guiding voice we drive conversations that matter conversations that add value to your life and to your career thank you so much for tuning in and uh, i'm super excited to welcome taso to the guiding voice platform and taso thank you so much for joining me and i love your background i love your jacket in fact so <laughs> nice to see you hearty welcome to the guiding voice thank you for having me so taso i'm on a new initiative at uh, the guiding voice at this point in time and i want to interview as many nationals as possible so that our audience get diverse perspective about entrepreneurship about leadership about technology about branding self help personality development all the topics that we used to cover so far i have interviewed people from 30 different countries but i wanted to touch as many countries as possible and uh, i found your profile very interesting and we had a little bit of interaction before getting into this recording so i would request you to share your background with our audience okay which country are you from and where are you living currently anything <clears throat> um so i have a somewhat of a unique journey in that i've lived in three different countries for um my life um i lived in uh canada on and off for 13 years uh mm-hmm. california for 10 years and now greece for 18 years Uh so if you do the math that makes me a little over 40 um and uh I moved to Greece about 8 years ago to um be able to work uh remotely with uh, the US and Canada um the time difference really works for me so I I like being here plus the cost of living is so much better I was mm-hmm. able to reduce my uh my burn rate while living mm-hmm. in a developing country so Yeah. Um that's why I'm in Greece although most of my clients are in the US and Canada. Oh wonderful and you are the first guest I'm hosting who is based out of uh, Greece and you'll be remembered for that reason also. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm happy to be the first. <laughs> yeah and uh, that's so can you briefly share the top 3 things that I've attributed to your success so far like uh, I've gone through your profile it's so in- impressive and inspiring. Uh thank you. I appreciate that. Um like I said I've had a somewhat of a unique journey. Um so the top 3 things may be hard for me to keep it to 3 because I've been very lucky and fortunate in a lot of ways. Um the one of the things that has contributed to my success is something my mother told me when I was younger. Um she said to me, mm-hmm. I don't care whether or not you are a doctor or a yeah. garbage man all i mm. care is that you're the best at what you do and um so my mom is a perfectionist if if that's not clear 
Uh, and, uh, and so I took that to heart and she said, it's, it's much more important that you love what you do mm-hmm. and, um, you make a lot of money at it because if you love what you do, you're going to put in the energy that it requires in order to put in those extra hours that you normally mm-hmm. wouldn't do if you hated it. So that would be the first thing is that my, the advice for my mother to do something I love to be the best at what I do. Uh, that'd be the first one. The one of the other top reasons I think I have been successful is I have learned to be patient with the process to communicate mm. with people often. Um, quite often, I I, I, I I like to think that everybody believes they're a good person, and yeah. everybody believes that their actions are justified. Um, mm. So often, it's my it's my job as a as a leader in marketing and creative to hear what they're trying to say. And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this later. Uh, the difference between, um, their vision versus their strategy, because mm-hmm. often, often we don't agree on strategy and it's easy to mm-hmm. lose with people who we don't agree with on strategy. Uh, but I think if you, if you listen a little bit deeper and you're more patient, yeah. with people, you're able to hear the vision that they have, and then you can offer an alternative strategy that they haven't thought of because that's not their profession. Um, and I think I would say a third, one of the three, one of the top other three things that let me, let me just backtrack and say that again. One of the top, one of the final top three things that I would say I have attributed to my success um, is being able to schedule my time the way that I see fit. Mm. Um, I'm a I'm an independent worker. I've been a freelancer for most of my career. Uh, of the 18 years, I would say the 16 years have been uh, working remotely from home. It, it kind of happened that way. It wasn't how I anticipated uh, my career going, but things happened in my life in such a way that I had to work outside of the office. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I'll get into that a little bit later, but. Um, the long story is that just from necessity, I learned to be autonomous and Mm. that has, you know, now being, uh, slightly over than older than 40, I'm seeing how I have a lot of colleagues who have spent the last 10, 15 years in an office and they're miserable. And I, I, I happen to believe that I, uh, people would be more productive working from home than from the office. So mm. I think the ability, my ability to work autonomously has been a huge, um, mm. a huge benefit to my career. Awesome. So, so those are my top three. Yeah. So patience and loving what you do and autonomy, just to summarize. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Let's now uh, jump to my favorite topic, which is about the toughest lessons learned in your entrepreneurial journey. Mm-hmm. Are there any things which you did not anticipate before embarking as an entrepreneur and you might have come across some hindrances which might have taught you a lot of great things which over a period of time we appreciate had that not happened i would have not learned so and so right Mm -hmm. has there been any of those things which you want to share yeah there's been there's been a lot of lessons i mean you Mm -hmm. don't you don't do what you do what anybody does what they do (laughs) for 20 almost 20 years and they don't have some lessons I would say for me, one of the lessons that I learned is that, um, like I said earlier, because a lot of people don't have patience in communication. Yeah. And so what happens is it's it's easy to fall into a situation with a customer or a client where mm. the, the customer or the client is not communicating directly. Um, yeah. they may be afraid of hurting your feelings. They may be afraid of admitting something. They may want to maintain control, whatever the reason is, um, rarely will you have a client or a customer who is direct and tells you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Yeah. So, uh, one of the tough, toughest lessons I've had to learn is to really dig deep and to keep asking the question, to find a way to ask the question in a different way that makes the people who are listening and and communicating with you uh for them to feel like they're not being attacked uh and that's very mm-hmm. challenging because a feeling of being attacked is personal it has nothing to do with me it has everything to do with the person who's listening to the question but still um learning how to communicate in a way that's nonviolent um uh 
and and th- there's there's a whole communication strategy that we can go into of nonviolent communication a little bit later. But in in general, um, learning to just dig deep uh, was one of one of the biggest lessons I had to learn. Um, and then if you're not digging deep, then you'll end up having arguments because you're yeah. not agreeing on strategy, like I was saying earlier. And that's where uh, I, I would say one of the one of the um, next most important lessons I learned was to write everything down to get mm. your clients to buy in to mm. you, you know to to agree to everything before you move to the next step uh because if you don't do that and if you don't mm-hmm. keep the client in that way then you end up allowing the client to take over because they don't feel safe in the way that you're directing them so um the so what i learned was to communicate the roadmap from the beginning get them to buy yeah. in get them to agree to certain rules for instance mm. if we're going to work together if you're not on time communicate right that's that's something that i think is respectful and like we said earlier uh before this call we were both late and we both communicated right yeah and that's a, that's a sign of uh respect for the other person and Absolutely. often when you're working with leaders uh they don't have a lot of patience so yeah. and and there's a there's an issue of um, there's a trigger of feeling of lack of respect if people don't treat you in a mm. way that you want to be treated. So um, I've learned to be extra sensitive to to leaders' needs because um, as as one myself, you know we have mm. a lot we have a lot of things, a lot of responsibilities. Uh, often we're stressed. Uh, we may not have the patience. And so if I can offer that patience on my end and I can communicate and I can align, uh, instead of aligning strategy, if I can align vision, uh, mm-hmm. then when the time comes for us to discuss strategy, uh, they're going to be more aligned because you agree on the final destination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But how you get there, you know, that, they may want to zigzag up the mountain, but you want to go straight up. And then you just have to get your client to see why that's important so they can buy in so you can. Mm-hmm. Them. Otherwise, if you just try to lead them. Um, you're going to have resistance from somebody who's extremely yeah. stubborn. I would say most CEOs are stubborn people, lack patience, um, have you know the weight of the world on their shoulders, and they're trying mm. to do everything all, all by themselves because often leaders, I, I would say from what I've done, they find it difficult to delegate things. So so just understanding understanding where they're coming from, communicate yeah. vision instead of strategy first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another lesson that I learned is even though you may know something, you still can't skip the steps. Yeah. So for instance, um, when it comes to developing uh, a brand, mm-hmm. first you have to make sure that your product is good before you start investing in marketing, right? Or in, in a mm-hmm. logo. Uh, often people, when in the beginning of my career, I started as a logo designer and people would come to me and say, hey, I want a logo. and you know, to be, to be honest, I was looking for money. I had to find a way to pay the bills. I wasn't about to question my customer whether or not it was the right time for them to have a logo. I just did mm-hmm. the logo. And so what I would do is I would create the logo for them without validate, validating their product, without making sure that there was a product market fit. Uh, I would do the logo and then they would go mm-hmm. to market with an amazing logo, if I can, if I do say so myself, I mean, I have, I'm, if I, you know, this will sound egotistical, but I'm one of the best designers in the world. And if I give somebody a logo that makes them look level A, Mm. but their product is level C, then what's going to happen is they're going to launch. People are going to have this immediate first impression that this is a professional company that is serious and has figured out its offer and all that stuff. And then mm. by the time they use your product uh, and, and have experience with your brand by the end of it, by the end of that experience, they're like, you know what uh, you sold me, you know, you, you did a bait and switch. You sold me professionalism, but you gave me level C. And mm. what that will do is that will hurt my customer in the long run. Right. Yeah. Because, what you've done is you've come to market as an imposter. And, and so it's like going to get a really nice bottle of wine to give you an example. Mm. You Mm -hmm. go to the, you go to the bar or the, not the bar, but the, um, wherever you buy wine from in in India, I don't know. You're in India, right? 
I don't know what it's like in India, but in the U.S. I'm there. in India. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but you, you, you just sort of go pick up a bottle of wine from all the bottles of wine, right? And so you, yeah. what are you doing? You're looking at the label, right? Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Nine, nine out of 10 purchases when it comes to wine has to do more with the label than any right. connoisseurship, connoisseurship of the wine. So right. buy the wine. It looks beautiful. You put it in the glass and it tastes like garbage. What are you going to do? <laughs> are you going to buy that again? No. In fact, they could they could improve the formula of their wine, let's say. You still wouldn't drink it. And not only that, but you would also go tell all your friends, you know mm. that really nice wine that has got the beautiful label? Don't buy it. It's yep. false. It's an imposter. Don't buy it. And you're actually going to yeah. actively engage in sabotaging the brand. Correct. So so that's that's all that coming back to you don't want to skip steps. You have to mm. make sure that you do every step, even though you believe that there's a product market fit, even though believe, mm. believe your offer is solid, you have to validate that offer before you go to the next step. So mm. uh, yeah. say, in the interest of time, I won't continue, but I could go on and yeah. on. No, I, I like that wine example. Normally, mm. customer uh, likes a product. They might tell to 10 other people, but if customer dislikes the product, they go to social media mm -hmm. and they, they tell to all their followers, yeah. right? So which means if you are giving a negative experience, it damages the reputation and it 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 is not, it is going to impact the future customers. Absolutely. If you are enhancing the customer experience, they will be loyal. They'll bring in more customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very important points. Now let's talk about your venture. Pigeon King. So what is the reason for naming it as Pigeon King? So Pigeon King is an, a venture that I started in 2010 with a mm. former business colleague of mine. Actually, we're working together on a new venture, but uh, mm. I won't be talking about that today. Um, but we started it in 2010 in San Diego. Um, mm. At the time, I had five or six years of experience as a designer. Um, I had already achieved some moderate success. And so we decided to come together and develop a brand development agency. Um, and of course, being a brand developer, I had to come up with a name. So why Pigeon King? So pigeons were the one of the very first technologies that we used to communicate over great distances. And you're the carrier pigeon, right? You put a little note on the pigeon, you make it fly off and go go find somebody, carry the message. And then so so this was the first form of telecommunication that we had. Uh, other than, you know, um, uh, smoke signals, if you're, you know, uh, a Native American. As one of the first technologies of communicating a message, being that marketing is all about communicating a message, uh, it seemed the pigeon as a, um, as a as a mascot made a lot of sense. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and then King, because I want to be the, uh, the premier um, uh, source of truth. So the... The king is the one who dictates the message mm. to everybody who works for the king. Uh, and mm. so because I want to help CEOs who are the king of their operation, essentially, a pigeon king is a CEO, is, yeah. a, is the person who has to guard the brand mm. and, and, uh, and make sure that everybody who works for that brand is aligned with that vision. That's one of the key roles of a CEO. And so that's yeah. what pigeon king. I, I love the logic. <laughs> it's so good. I think it's relatable. Wonderful. Mm. And uh, that's so you have helped brands and uh, helped them in terms of raising capital for over 300 startups in the last two decades. So I'm really curious to understand from you, how do you approach this brand building for companies? What is a framework or series of steps or series of activities that you follow? Mm -hmm. Like I said earlier, I don't like to skip steps. So the methodology yeah. that I've developed is based on a pretty standard model of discover, okay. strategize, and execute. Meaning that first I have to... So typically what the, the people who come to me are either in one of two categories. They're either a startup yeah. where they have no experience, they have no brand, mm. they have nothing, or... <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, or uh, they have a business that is making them a fair amount of money, but uh, it's not yielding a profit because they haven't they haven't uh, niched down to scale, right? Mm. 
So, yeah. so typically those are usually because everybody again comes to me for a logo, you know, in, in their mind, what they think is I need a logo. I need a website. I need to promote my message. I need to be taken seriously. Yeah. Uh, but often they've skipped steps. So in either case, I see where they are. Uh, if yeah. they, if they're at the beginning of their journey, I would take them on as a, uh, uh, as a client to discover mm. their, um, their expertise, um, the, the, the market we would, uh, we would maybe come up with a, an offer and validate it uh, against potential customers that they would want to interview. So, um, a big part, a big portion of validating the offer mm -hmm. is, uh, uh, surveys, interviews, and focus groups. Um, because usually your customers can tell you more about the competition than you can research. Yeah. If they've already done all the research yeah. for you. Mm. Um, and I really like to believe, yeah. I really like to work smart, not hard. So I would rather yeah. spend 10 people who've done the research that I couldn't do in a year versus try and mm. hire people to do the research. Um, so mm. I go, I go straight to the customer and I'll first mm. have them fill out some kind of, um, survey giving me demographics, psychographics, reasons why they're purchasing, such as is the reason you're doing you you want to hire me to do it for you because you don't want to do it, you don't know how to do it. Uh, is it that you don't have time to do it, or doing it would make you lose money? Mm. Some, so so learning what the reason is, yeah, understanding what their motivations is. Are they trying to save as much money as possible right now? Are they looking for a good value? Or are they looking for performance where money is no object because they're losing money by this not working? So there's just a lot of uh, questions that you need to do during discovery. And I would say the thing that mm -hmm. the thing that separates me from a lot of other people in my business is they often spend more time in development than they spend in discovery. Um, mm -hmm. And I would say I spend about eighty percent of my time asking questions. This comes wow. from this comes from Einstein. Einstein says, if you, if you understand, he said, if I was looking to solve a problem, I would spend 99% understanding the problem and 1% of the time fixing yeah. it. Um, mm. So I spend a lot of time in discovery. It's the foundation of my mm. pyramid. Mm. Um, and then mm -hmm. once, once, we, once we do the discovery, then when it comes to strategy, the second phase, mm. um, you already have a lot of buy-in from your customer, from your client, you're the CEO, because you've taken them on this journey with you of discovering. So uh, if I go back to the CEO and I say, hey, here's 200 surveys and mm -hmm. the majority of the people in the survey are women. Mm. Do you think that maybe women are your primary target? Because only women respond. Mm -hmm. they, say, they may say yes or no. Yeah. But you can start aligning uh, your demographics first, which is the easiest because it's, an, it's a non-emotional conversation. Yeah. Uh, another another issue I see often is uh, businesses saying, "Oh, we serve twenty year olds to fifty year olds, men and women, just blanket." You know, and that's that's a first sign of somebody who has not thought of strategy clearly. So, if you've already done the discovery, you you prevent um, strategies like that from developing, because then you say, "Well, look at this." You know, ninety percent of the people who answered were women. And seventy mm percent -hmm. of those people are in are millennials, so maybe we should speak yeah. to millennial women. Then mm -hmm. the moment you get a buy-in, boom, that's locked. It's written down. It's not changing. If yeah. if if I ever have a conversation again about that, I'll say, hold on, we made this. We made the decision. We found out what we found in discovery. Now we're in strategy, and you've told me yes to this demo, this target. We're building everything based on that target. So if you if we go to the next step and you change your mind, all the work that we're going to do from here to then is for nothing. Mm -hmm. So you have to yeah. make sure we're not changing. Are you sure? And so yeah. by by making them buy in into the mm. discovery and then to the strategy, when the time comes for execution, the final phase, it's clockwork. It's just I don't spend any time. Like I I make. I would say again, by my standards, some of the best websites visually and and as far as communication, you know, about its message. I think I make some of the best in the world, and it's because I spent all the time up in discovery and strategy execution. 
while that was how I started, I started off in execution. I learned so much that as I, I've learned as much as I have in my career that I've learned that execution should be where you spend the least amount of time and you spend the least amount of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are yeah. my three phases. Uh, hmm. Great. So discovery where you spend a lot of time and then strategy where you are trying to dive a little deep in terms of performing further study and how to align it with various demographies of the customers and so on. Mm-hmm. And finally, the execution part wherein you spend least amount of time because you have spent a lot of time doing the groundwork and in terms of spending good amount of time during the first two phases, discovery and strategy. Yeah, yeah. very well articulated. And yeah, I think uh, it makes absolute sense, especially for the kind of uh, field that you are in. I think uh, it is uh, relevant. And uh, as you quoted about Einstein's uh, quotation, like I spend 99% of the time understanding the problem. I think that is true. I heard one more quote related to the problem solving. What it says is, if you have understood the problem, half of it is already solved. Like mm-hmm. many times people overlook the problem. They try mm-hmm. to jump into the solution right away rather than diving deep into the problem and to understand it better. Awesome. And uh, I've gone through the case study of HubDoc, mm-hmm. okay, which was acquired by Zero for $70 million, right? So yes. which is not a small deal at all. No. And how did you help HubDoc? Do you want to share your story of HubDoc with our audience? Yeah, yeah. So let me give you a little bit of background on what uh, HubDoc, Hmm. what happened with HubDoc for your listeners who may not have read the case study. Um, So HubDoc approached my employer because Hmm. I actually wasn't, I didn't even know HubDoc existed. Um, But one day I just showed Hmm. up to HubDoc because my employer said to me, uh, you're going to be working from this address tomorrow. Hmm. And so I just okay. showed up thinking I was working for my employer and turned out that um, I had been uh, subcontracted because my employer wanted to save some money and and they only wanted me three days out of the week. So they farmed mm. me out for two days out of the week to one of their friends who was just down the street uh, in a similar, both were fintech corporations, so it was very similar. And so I just sort of showed up at this office, uh, not knowing what I was there for. And mm. then I was told that I was going to help them with, uh, you know, rebrand and pivot. Um, so I naturally, like I said, I just went right into discovery. I spent about two months in discovery for a three-month project. Mm-hmm. The project was to help them. The first project was to help them with their intro video. Um, so what I had to do was I had to create a brand story that would communicate to our customers or to their customers that we understood their problems, that we had a solution, and and what the benefits of that solution were and how it was going to change their life, how it was going to transform their life. Um, so early on, we decided very, very, it was very clear to us that we wanted to have two different targets. There was a B2B target and a B2C target. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The values of the company were to be friendly, to be approachable, to be easy to use, to be global, you know, so um, they and, and, and they already had a style. They came to me mm. with a they, they had tried to mimic FreshBooks, which was another Canadian company based out of Toronto. Um, yeah. Also, like them, was in the accounting world. So uh, I started to take their values and develop a story based around that. And so I, um, in psychology, we call this the drama triangle. And in fact, you'll see this in Mm. every every Disney movie you've ever seen. You've seen the drama triangle. Uh, The drama triangle was developed by a psychologist by the name of Karpman. So sometimes it's called the Karpman triangle. It's spelled K-A-R-P-M-A-N-N, I believe, two N's. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And if you look in what uh, Karpman discovered in the in the in this in this drama triangle, it's that everybody in this triangle, the victim, the villain, and the and the uh, and the ally, mm. uh, well, he calls them persecutor, uh, victim, and villain. No, persecutor, victim. I, I'm forgetting his, but it's a, it's it's the general idea that you have. You know, look mm. at look at um, 
the Little Mermaid. Yeah. You have Ursula, she's the villain. You have mm-hmm. Ariel, she's the victim. Mm-hmm. And you have the ally. Uh, mm. Who is who is the ally? Some kind of fairy godmother. Well, she's got she's got her. Who's the one who calls her to action? It's funny because Ursula appears to be her ally, but turns out not to be her ally. And that's that's maybe something unique about Little Mermaid. But usually, let's actually let's go to Lord of the Rings. That's a better example. Uh, okay. Frodo is the victim because you've got the Shire and it's about to be uh, attacked by the villain, Sauron. And you have ally, which is Gandalf. And Gandalf comes to the hero or the victim at the beginning of the journey, but who becomes a hero? Gandalf yeah. comes to the victim mm. and says, I have the solution and I'm going to call you to action, which is a very Joseph Campbell uh, idea. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the mentor is going to call you to action to go through the hero's journey to go fight the dragon, to get the, you know, to say, you you see how that goes. So that triangle exists because everybody in that triangle gains some kind of benefit. Uh, It's a, it's an identity. So once you understand that that every story has these three identities, then you you build that into a brand story, then you can start communicating. Like I needed to communicate for HubDoc the mm. villain, the victim, and the hero in the story, so that mm. people could watch that, see themselves as the victim, and see that the the ally, the company, was going to help them through their problem. So in the in the case of Hubdoc, uh, the villain is the IRS. Mm-hmm. The problem is um, the problem mm. is tax season, right? Because the yeah. IRS is asking you for money during tax season. And mm. another problem is the disorganization that most business owners have with their, uh, with their product, with their, um, with their accounting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the solution is HubDoc. And what does HubDoc do? Mm-hmm. HubDoc is represented by a robot, a robot that goes and automatically fetches your documents from the bank and sends okay. them from your bank to your accountant directly. So when tax season comes, tax season comes, uh, you don't have to go looking for receipts. Your, your accountant already has them. And so mm. th- that um, value add was what we went to market with. Uh, I built them the intro video um, and you can watch it. HubDuck still has it up after now eight years since we've worked together. Um, and uh, And I would say communicating that story was the first step to hubdoc's value being understood by customers which and it all also added a level of professionalism because the uh, the graphics of themselves were professionally created mm-hmm. i hired an animator i hired uh, uh an artist you know even though i can do those things i wanted to focus on people who were better than me um, yeah. and so i led a very small team and then combine that with a very solid teamwork from the marketing department because mm-hmm. I was not the head of marketing. Uh, I was working with the head of marketing as their head of creative to develop okay. all, all of this. And, uh, and we had really good communication too. So I would say combination of my methodology of using brand story and, to, and the Cartman drama triangle, com- taking that along with a very solid team effort from everyone because the product was amazing. The marketing messaging was amazing. Uh, and, uh, you know, support was amazing too. They, they Hubdoc, by the end, by the time I left, uh, after four years, uh, we, we were a company of four or six people and we were up to like 120 people. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so, and so then Hubdoc w- w- kept winning awards and by mm-hmm. zero, zero. And uh, we did a huge effort to use Zero in our marketing because Zero and uh, QuickBooks were the two premier accounting mm-hmm. at the time. So mm-hmm. also that relationship with them uh, turned out so that after two three years, Zero made an offer to buy the company yeah. and bring the brand underneath their umbrella. Yeah, well, that's so compelling story. So mm. you have uh, very well explained the three. Characters over here, villain, victim, and hero. Mm-hmm. And now uh, I'll do a bit of research on this Cupman. It's a drama triangle. I think it's a great learning. And so thanks for sharing that. And with that, let's uh, move forward, Tasso. Mm-hmm. What is the most challenging assignment that you have worked so far? Um, 
I would say instead of instead of saying what the most challenging assignment was, I would say the most challenging mm-hmm. issue I have found working okay. with clients. Uh, because okay. one, I don't want to isolate anybody mm. uh, and talk about them. So um, I would say the most challenging thing that I have had to deal with was how much how much slack to give CEOs when working with them. Mm, mm, um, because CEOs, like I said, they're stubborn people. Uh, we are stubborn people. Um, I have to include myself in there. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we like to get our own way. We're independent. Yeah. And so when, when we ask for help, I think it's hard for a CEO to ask for help. I think uh, mm. a lot of our identity is, is tied into performance. And mm. when we can't perform on our own, there's somewhat, we take a little bit of a hit to our ego just in general. Uh, some people more than most um, than others. It's, it's not, but I think that to some degree, there's a little bit of that. So when, when working with clients, if you're not leading them enough, mm-hmm. they'll take over and they'll yeah. take over because they don't feel safe. And safety is a primary concern of a CEO, especially if they have a large team. So, mm. Um, something I had to learn, one of my biggest challenges was where the, where to draw the line between giving too much slack and not giving enough slack. Because I don't want to appear like, you know, uh, 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 you know, a, a fascist leader, like yeah. you're going to do it my way. I, I, that's not going to work. And mm-hmm. it's also not going to work if I'm the complete opposite. And I say, yeah. well, let's do whatever you want to do, sir. Like I, that's not going to work for a CEO either. So there has to be somewhere in between yeah. fascist and pushover. Somewhere in the middle is the is the golden uh, uh, the golden ratio. So for me, it was, it was very challenging to find that, and I believe that I found the answer by what I was saying to you earlier about getting buy-in. So in order to lead your your client, your client needs to know that you have everything under control. But they also need to feel like you're calm because if you're mm. in a moment stressed, they're gonna that's gonna trigger their. So the only way to maintain calm is to follow a methodology, you know, to be proactive about doing everything in the right order. Uh, so that's how I solved that problem, where okay. I, I would introduce my client to the roadmap, I would get their buy-in, and they would understand what I what requirements I had of them if we were going to work together. I understood what requirements they had of me for us to work together. And then I communicated uh, vision, not strategy. And, okay. and, and, that, and that allowed me to lead customers. Mm. Awesome. So I think this has been insightful conversation. That's all. Let's add some spice to the episode. I'm going to kick off a quick rapid fire round with some mm-hmm. interesting questions with your concern. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah, let's go. <laughs> All right. I love this spirit. And here comes my first question. And I'm really curious about because this is to a uh, branding guru, creative person, Mr. Tasso, mm-hmm. which you could have one gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it. What would it say? A billboard with anything. So I'm assuming the purpose of the billboard is to attract people to my business. Yeah, that's the first thing. So if I'm a, yeah. if I want to attract people to my business, I want to communicate that I understand the hell that they're going through. Mm. And I think one of the biggest struggles now it depends who I'm speaking to. If am I speaking to startups or am I speaking to mm. uh, people who need to pivot? If mm. I'm speaking, if I'm speaking to startups, I would say something along the lines of. I, I would make it clear to them that they are suffering for from a very big problem. And the problem that they're suffering from is usually new business idea syndrome. Mm. So, I would, so I would maybe ask the question, do you suffer from new business idea syndrome? Mm. And I'm, I'm hoping that that would create enough of an interest to say, wait, what is that exactly? And they would, they would look, but you know, maybe, maybe that wouldn't be a very positive or not positive, but a very, impactful message because it, the message also has to go dive directly to the problem that they have. So maybe it'd be something more direct. Maybe that maybe mm. are your employees wasting your time? 
something to that because that's really what a CEO is dealing with, right? You have a you have yeah. a team that is that is operating in silos. There's no mm-hmm. communication or strategy. Everybody's doing whatever they want to do, and you have no control over your team. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, something to that effect. You know, is your is your team controlling you? Something something is, to that. Is, okay, is your team controlling you? Yeah. Nice. Next, which company, in your opinion, is good at brand storytelling? Hubduck. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. No, but but seriously, I think uh, it's interesting because who does a good job of brand storytelling? Who does a good job? Who does a good job? Mm-hmm. Um, like with Hubduck, I did a, I hit people over the head with it. And, you know, it was mm-hmm. very clear that I was doing that. But I think I think if you look at there's a there are a few examples. Coca Cola does a good a good job. So okay. Coca Cola is selling you a vision. What does the vision look like? If you look at all the people in Coca Cola ads, they're all drinking Coke and they're having a wonderful time. It doesn't matter if it's cold. It doesn't matter if it's hot. Mm. They're, if if it's cold, they're snuggling, and if it's they're, they're hot, then they're they're enjoying the summer. Right. Okay. And so, so who's the victim? The victim is the user, right? The, the person who's drinking Coca-Cola who wants to feel good. Coca-Cola is the answer to feeling good. So what's, what's, who's the villain? The environment is the villain. Right. And so, mm-hmm. and so you're like, Oh, well, how is that? So I say, well, if it's really cold, you could die from hypothermia. If it's really hot. You can die from, die from heat exhaustion. But Coca-Cola makes it just wonderful. And just, just by drinking Coca-Cola, happiness, you know, uh, enjoy Coca-Cola, I think is their motto. So, mm. or just enjoy. So they do a really good job, I think, of communicating, to, of sub-communicating. Because they don't act yeah. tell you that, you know, are you cold? You know, they're, they're not going to have that conversation. They're just going to show you that story and then, then show you a koala bear. Or not sorry, not a koala bear, a polar bear, uh, with with the babies and drinking coke, playing in the snow, right? And being comp- you can't do that with humans. You can't put yeah. humans in the snow and and like, oh, this is wonderful. No, they're freezing. So you just instead of instead of uh, instead of changing the villain, they change mm. the, their their victim. And mm. instead of making a victim, which would be a human, they made it a polar bear, which is a hero in the snow. So mm-hmm. just some examples of storytelling, but you know, there's Apple, there's Tesla. I mean, they, they all do a very good job. Hmm. Yeah. Good. Fair enough. And uh, let's move ahead to the uh, next question. Can you describe yourself in just one word? Verbose. <laughs> do, you know, do you know the word verbose? Yes. Huh? I talk a lot. Yeah. And and what is the weirdest thing that you have ever eaten? Thing, uh, oh, menudo. Have you ever heard of menudo? No, I didn't. Menudo, <laughs> menudo is a Mexican dish. I believe it's Mexican. Uh, mm-hmm. Where they take the stomach lining and they turn mm-hmm. it into a soup. Mm-hmm. And I have a weird thing about texture where, you know, like I'll, I'll eat tomato sauce, but I won't eat tomatoes because tomatoes are slimy. But tomato sauce. Mm. So I have a weird mm. thing about texture, and um, yeah, when it comes to menudo, you're you're tasting the inside of the stomach, and you're tasting all these little little squiggly things that are there to it, it, suck the nutrients. Yeah, intestines. <laughs> it was the most disgusting thing I've ever eaten. But the but if I can say the one thing that I've eaten that I didn't think I was going to like, but I liked, was tongue. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. I went and I had uh, cow tongue at a Korean barbecue. Uh, both oh. dishes, both dishes uh, were were given to me by a friend of mine who is a chef. Oh. so I trust okay. her. Okay, she. <laughs> I don't know if I. So, yeah, I I ate the goat version because we we don't eat cow in India, mm-hmm. but the goat version of menudo and also the tongue and it tastes good, so okay. I can relate to it. Okay. okay, moving to the next one. Uh, between invisibility versus super synth, which one do you prefer? Give it a chance. I think my, I mean, obviously as a man, as I consider myself as a protector, so I'd like to have strength, super strength, but 
I think that if I thought a little bit more about it, I would probably say invisibility because mm. as I mentioned to you, I like to do a lot of discovery. I'm very thorough in discovery and mm. invisibility would get me, give me a chance to discover things that I normally wouldn't be able to discover if I was there. The same way how if you have the double slit experiment in physics, how an observer makes it to particles instead of a wave or vice versa. I don't remember the experiment, but the same thing is an observer change, changes the response of the universe. And if I can be observing without being observed, I think I would learn. Mm. All right. Yeah, makes sense. And with that, let's move to the last one out of rapid fire. What is one electronic gadget that you'd like to see or invent yourself? Uh, a teleportation device. Um, <laughs> I, I, I hate traveling, but I love the destination. <laughs> hate travel, but love the destination. <laughs> Good one. And I think that should be the uh, tagline for whoever is building the teleportation device. Mm -hmm. They have to put that <laughs> hate travel, love the destination as a gigantic billboard. <laughs> I, I love guess, it. I guess I'm concerned. Yeah. I'm concerned about using it though, because. Oh. Uh, just on a on a philosophical level, are you the same person on the other end? <laughs> like when you, when, when, because essentially, the teleportation yeah. would deconstruct you and then reconstruct you on on the other end. Right. Are you the same right. person or are you a different person? Have you have you mm. just died after you go through? Mm. The so that I would mm. I would still feel very careful about going through. Mm. It. But mm. I, you know, assuming I'm, I don't die after using the teleportation device. Yeah, I'd like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, good one. I, I loved it. And let's flip back to the mainstream. And uh, here comes my next question: What is your one piece of advice to those aspiring entrepreneurs to make big in their careers? Um, follow my advice, uh, or sorry, not my advice. Follow my mom's advice. Um, <laughs> do what, do what you love. Uh, mm. I'll, give, I'll give you an example. My uh, my girlfriend. Mm. She's a very intelligent girl. She's she mm. has a couple of degrees. To give you an idea, I don't have a single degree. I don't have a high school degree. I don't have a college degree. I mm. I left school before I got a degree, but she has two. Mm. Mm. And and yet I'm much further along in my career because I did the things that I loved and mm. did the things that she had to do to um, maybe make her family happy. Maybe you know she has her own reasons of why she did what she did, but. Um, I followed my heart. I did what I love. Mm. And, you know, thankfully, I'm in a position where I can offer her the space that she needs to develop her career. But yeah. if if career is important to you, don't chase money, chase, mm. chase love. Oh, so unique and so profound. And uh, that, here comes the last one. Just can you share your experience being hosted on the Guiding Voice platform? How did you feel? How was your experience overall? Uh, I've enjoyed it. Um, you know, I just met you. I, I had never heard of your podcast before this. Um, yeah. But I, I really appreciate being given a platform to share my knowledge. I think one, mm -hmm. of, the, one of the saddest things is that one day I'm going to die and all of this knowledge that I have is going to die with me. Right. Uh, you know, I'd like to know that future generations are able to take the things that we've learned and yeah. improve upon them. So, so for me, being hosted on the guiding voice gives me an opportunity to leave behind a legacy. Uh, yeah. And I appreciate that. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I always think the same thing, like whatever the efforts that we are putting in, it's going to stay here even after our lifetime. So which you reminded me and thank you so much for your kind words. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your time and all the insights. I thoroughly enjoyed every bit of our conversation. Thank you once again, Tasu. Thank you, Naveen. So, folks, that was our conversation with uh, Tasu Nikitakis. And before we move into the trivia section, here is a request to you. Please subscribe to us from wherever you have tuned in, in case if you haven't done already. In case if you are listening to this episode on Spotify or Apple, request you to follow. If you are not already following us and also feel free to leave a review and rating so that it will help us boost our reach and if, and if you have loved this episode and found a conversation useful request you to share with at least three of your friends or colleagues who can benefit from the guiding voice thank you so much in advance now let's hop into the trivia segment 
And today's trivia is about the first billboard which was created to advertise the circus. Means the very first billboard that was put up was created to advertise the circus. Normally, when we drive by the billboards on our way to work or anywhere, have you ever wondered how they first came to be? Although we likely pass by several billboards on our morning commute, these giant advertisements were not always this popular. In the early 19th century, the closest thing cities had to billboards were the small promotional flyers local merchants would would hang up for passers-by to see as they went through the town. And this changed when a man named Jared Bell began printing large advertisements, now known as billboards, to advertise traveling circus acts. A few years later, his idea took off and the first ever billboard was leased for advertising purposes in 1867. Interesting thing, isn't it? And here comes a question to you all. If you were given a chance to put up your quote, put up your quotation or anecdote on a gigantic billboard anywhere on anywhere and of any size in this world, what would it be and where would, where would it be? Please feel free to leave your comments in case if you are watching it on YouTube or else you can share your thoughts through social media or email me. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Friends, do not forget to share your topic recommendations and guest speaker suggestions through social media or email me at theguidingvoiceforyou at theredgmail.com. I'm your host, Navin Samala, just a fellow IT professional and a passionate learner on a mission to make the world a better place to live through the conversations that matter and conversations that add value to your life and to your career. Until next time, bye-bye. See you all in the next episode with another wonderful guest signing off for today.